Well, we're going to turn now to Genesis 1, and we'll be looking specifically at Genesis 1, verse 1. And this is the beginning of a new series on the book of Genesis. Not sure how long this is going to take, <laughs> but we'll start at the beginning and we'll end at the end, and we'll see what we come across as we go through this. So Genesis 1, verse 1. <clears throat> Hear now the word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the simplicity and the clarity of your word. We thank you that you begin at the beginning and you end at the end. Lord, we do pray that as we see your creative work, that our hearts and our minds would be filled with awe at the power of your work and your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, friends, as we begin our way carefully through the book of Genesis, as we work our way Sunday by Sunday, verse by verse, maybe sometimes more than one verse at a time, we'll see. As we work our way carefully through this book, we need to recognize, excuse me, we need to recognize that this is a book of beginnings. In this book, in Genesis, God tells us how our world began. He also tells us how the human race began. He informs us how sin began. And then he tells us how salvation began. And then we see through the rest of this book how God's covenant relationship with his people began. So it's a book of beginnings. But by far the most important and fundamental beginning that we see in this book is the way in which God's self-revelation begins. God begins His self-revelation. In this first verse of the first chapter of His first book of His Word, God tells us who He is and why that matters to us. This is self-revelation. Now, we talked a couple weeks ago about the concept of a herald, right? In the old uh, jousting times, the medieval times, you had a herald who would stand up and, you know, doo-doo-doo, and then he would, he would say, now presenting the knight that I represent, now presenting Sir whatever. And that herald knew the, the lineage of that knight that he was presenting. He knew it better than probably the knight himself. And so he would present who this night was to the listening crowd. Well, I'm sorry to say this, but there is nobody, or maybe I'm just amazed to say this, there is nobody who knows God better than God himself. And so for us to say, let me tell you who God is, and I'm not going to use the word of God, I'm just going to tell you who he is, is foolishness, it's folly. God tells us who he is in his word. He reveals himself because he is the only one capable of revealing himself. And so we're going to focus in on this as we go through this section, this verse. And we're going to talk about how God reveals himself by his word and by his power. That's our theme this morning, that God reveals himself by his word and his power. And we'll be looking at three different points as we go through that theme. The first is the beginning of creation. 
the beginning of creation. And then we're going to look at the revelation of God's nature. And then we're going to finish with the work of the Creator. So the beginning of creation, the revelation of God's nature, and finally the work of our Creator. First things first, though, the beginning of creation. With simplicity and with grace, God begins His self-revelation with one word. And that word in Hebrew is bereshit. What we translate as three words, in the beginning, is said simply in one word in Hebrew, bereshit. Now you might wonder what the big deal is about this word. It's just the when, right? In, in, the, in the who, what, where, when, how, and why of creation, this is just the when. Why is this a, an important thing? Why is, why is this even worth discussing? Well, the answer to this is that in this word, God creates the foundation of his raw power. He reveals the foundation of his raw power and complete sovereignty over the universe and everything in it. This word, this one word, sets the stage for everything that follows in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So let's take a closer look. First off, the meaning of this word, Bereshit. This word has a, a, I'm getting into the grammar here, I'm sorry, you don't need to remember this, but it has a prepositional particle, and that prepositional particle is b, which means in. But this little particle is added to the beginning of an absolute noun, and this is important grammar, this is an absolute noun. This absolute noun, reshit, it means beginning. Now, to be quite honest, this word, Bereshit, can be rendered or translated in two different ways. First, the traditional translation, the one we're familiar with from our uh, version, our, our translation of the Scripture. You know, I'm sure some of you even have this memorized. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's pretty simple and straightforward. It follows from that absolute noun. But there are some who read this not as an absolute but as a construct. And if you want to talk about absolutes versus constructs later, we can totally do that. But, but they would take this word and they would use a construct form of this. They'd tweak it a little bit and they would say, well, this proves something else. They would read this verse very differently. They would reach this translation of the first and second word, word, uh, verse sorry, from this translation of the word. They would say, in the beginning, when... God was creating the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Now I hope you see the the difference, the subtle difference there. The difference between in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and this other reading of this word, in the beginning when God was creating the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. You see the subtle change, right? God goes from being the creator of everything that now has existence, to being merely the one who took matter and shaped it. If you read it in this other way, this non-absolute way, then God is no longer the one who creates everything out of nothing, but rather, He is the one who takes something outside of Himself and molds it to His liking. So as you can see, this, even this, is an attack on the sovereignty of God. And we aren't even three words in yet. 
So what do we do? We look at the rest of Scripture to help us see the truth. Revelation 4.11 is one of these places that we look. Revelations 4, Revelation 4.11 gives us the blunt truth that God created all from nothing. That verse says, we, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. God doesn't just take materials and say, ooh, look at this, I found something kind of interesting floating out here in the, the primeval soup. I'm going to just kind of morph it. No, God actually gives existence to everything. By His will, they gain existence and they are created. Now don't worry, we're going to get back to this towards the end of this morning's sermon. We're not going to strand creation of everything out of nothing you know, in just this, this beginning point. But for now, we need to see that God spoke something out of nothing. He is the one who creates everything in the beginning. The first word of Scripture demands to be read as the beginning point of all matter and all creation and all existence that we experience everything that we see that we know that we experience today finds its beginning point in this one moment in the beginning in the beginning god brought all of it into being well, another facet of this that we'll go into next sermon is that this is a uh, in this verse this verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it's not a generic title. This is not just like, okay, alright. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now we're just going to leave that and just assume that's true and we're going to go and talk about like how he did that. This is not a generic title that is then filled out by the next six days. No, as we see from the beginning of verse 2, this is the beginning of the created universe and God provides himself here with a blank canvas. Blank canvas on which to create his universe. From the beginning of verse 1, these, these words, or this word in the Hebrew, in the beginning, to the end of verse 5, we are on day 1 of this brand new universe. This is a, a specific reference to the power and the absolute authority of God. There is no, well, God created the world and he started by finding a dark, formless void outside of himself. You know, there was some water in there too, that's verse 2. And he decided to speak organization into that void. Absolutely not. Rather, this verse, this beginning verse tells us that there was an absolute point of time. That was the beginning. Before that beginning, nothing of what we see, hear, touch, or experience had any existence. Even intangibles like time had no existence. At this moment, recorded by God in Genesis 1-1, God brought something into being. He made the universe to appear where there was absolutely nothing before. Just by His will and through His Word. Now, we don't see this in our modern day creation, do we? There's all sorts of rules that science has come up with that you just don't see something pop out of nothing. This is not something that we experience on a daily basis. You're not walking down the street and all of a sudden, poof, there's a car right in front of you. No. Sometimes it seems that way, yes, I, I, I grant you that. But brothers and sisters, this, this beginning 
It was completely unique in that God said, He spoke this existence, this universe into existence. Now before we go into uh, what this creation looked like or how it was done, before we go too far into that, we need to take a moment to see what Genesis 1-1 tells us about theology. And I promise you, this is not the boring point of the sermon. Theology is, for, for those of you who, who are not aware, theology is the study of God. This is why God reveals himself to us in his word. If we only had creation around us, we might be able to deduce that there is a God. We, we go walking, we see complexity, and we say, well, there must be some sort of designer, right? But we wouldn't know God just from creation. But here in this verse, God begins what is known as self-revelation. He gives us, in these few words, the beginning of who he is. First, we see from this passage that God is independent. Now, I'm sure most of you have met independent folks out here around Concho, right? They've got yards full of all sorts of different building materials. They, they live off solar. They've got their own well. Maybe even they have a refinery to, to, to refine the oil that they draw up out of the soil and turn it into gas to run all the... Anyway, you've seen independent people out here in Concho. But let me tell you, when I say independent, I mean something completely different. I mean something completely more amazing. God is independent in the sense that he is neither created nor caused. Now, to understand this, we have to go into a bit of a hypothetical um, exercise. Time. Uh, Time is a creation that God put us in. It's a dimension that he created for us to live in. And God exists outside of that time. But imagine for a moment that you could experience the moment before the beginning. It's impossible, right? But imagine for a moment that you were there, a moment before time began, before the universe was created. If you could exist in that moment, if you could see everything that was there, you would see God there. God exists before anything else is created or caused. Before the beginning of the universe, God was there. He existed without a creator. He caused us, but he himself has no cause. Now this is a a brain warper for sure, isn't it? We look at everything that we experience and we say, well, what was the beginning of this? Where did this come from? And we can track this back. We can say, all right, so the paper we write on came from a, uh, um, a sawmill and the sawmill you know, took this tree and the tree came from a seed and that seed came from another tree. We can track and track and track and track. But eventually, brothers and sisters, we hit one immovable, unbreakable wall. And that is the fact that there had to be something that created all of this that was not himself created. And that is God. We hit this absolutely impenetrable wall of God's existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that means he, the creator, existed before his creation and brought it into being. Now, beyond the fact that this points to God's infinity and his self-existence, it also demonstrates a vital point to humans like us. We, along with the created universe, we belong to God. 
We get a dog, right? A pet or a cat maybe. You know, we, we have this animal that is our pet. We can do as we want with it. We can train it to, to be kitty, uh, to, be, to be potty trained, to, to, to use the bathroom in that kitty litter, or to go outside when it needs to go. We can train it to do tricks, to obey, right? Why? Because that dog is ours. We own it. We didn't create it, but we have ownership over it. God's demand on us is far greater because He created us. We are His to do with as He wills, and His sovereignty over us is His right as our Creator. Now, I'm sure this makes you feel small. It makes me feel small. I I dare say it's not a comfortable concept to accept, but this is not a bad thing. God is eternal. He is the uncreated creator. He is the beginning and the end of everything. And we, therefore, are not the sovereign free will agents like we imagine ourselves to be. We are but dust. We're dust. We are creations of the infinite, uncreated God. And so this means that any value or authority that we possess is given to us by His sovereign hand. Well, there's another point of theology that we can gain from the the third word of the Hebrew Bible. We have Bereshit in the beginning, and then we have the action word created. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But then we have the third word, Elohim. You guys all familiar with the word Elohim? God. It means God. Now, the fascinating thing about this title, this title that God himself provides for us, that is used so many times throughout Scripture, the fascinating thing about this is that it is a plural noun. This is a plural noun. If you want to be extremely literal and kind of unscriptural, you could translate this God's. In the beginning, God's created the heavens and the earth. But before you start calling me a polytheist, I promise you I'm not, before you start calling me a polytheist, we need to understand that God is very clear about how he is one. There is only one God. We see this in Deuteronomy 6, where God again uses this term, Elohim. He says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Elohim. That's plural. And then he says right away, Yahweh is one. Singular. Now this is just such an interesting thing that God would choose in the third word of his word to say, I am one, but my title is plural. We have to say, what in the world is meant by this? God says he is the only God. He says he is one, and yet he reveals himself with a plural noun. What's going on? Well, actually, we are supposed to ask why. Why is God revealing himself to humanity with this plural noun? Now, some will take this and simplify it down to a royal plural, which doesn't line up historically, but whatever. It's an interesting start. They say, well, God is just saying, we are king over all of our creation." Something like a, you know, a, a, a king in a court. We go back to the medieval days again, right? He would say you know, something like, um, We are very displeased, and our displeasure will show itself by you being re- removed from our presence. 
Sounds kind of kooky, but you know, it's, it's the royal we. We're familiar with this, right? It's a decent start, I guess, but it fails to take in the whole of Scripture. Later in the same chapter, we see the Spirit of God moving over the waters. And we see God say, let us make man in our image. So even if he is just speaking in the the royal plural when he says, let us make man in our image, we see the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the water. Obviously, there is some complexity here. The Spirit of God is referred to in addition to God. So we ask, again, what is going on? Well, the answer is really in our New Testament passage that we read a few minutes ago. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. According to the disciple that Jesus loved, John was not only with God. John was, I'm sorry, Jesus was not only with God. Jesus was not only involved in creation. Jesus was not only essential to creation, but Jesus was God. In fact, literally, God was the Word. God was the Word. You see, in this plural noun, Elohim, we have the first piece of the mysterious and wonderful doctrine of the Trinity. God is one substance, and in that one substance are three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now we're going to talk about more of this as we get into verse 2. That will be two weeks from now. As we get into verse 2, we're going to actually talk about this, the Trinitarian aspect of creation. But for now, it's amazing to understand that the Trinitarian nature of God and the independence of God himself are revealed to us in the first and third word of Holy Scripture. In the beginning, God already existed and was the uncaused cause who brought everything else into being. God, God is a singular, the singular deity who reveals himself in the plural. He is the eternal triune God who has always been and is always and will always be. So the theology that's packed into these first couple of verses, these first couple of words of this verse is amazing. God's not like us. He wasn't created. He's on a whole different plane. But beyond that, God, the Trinitarian God of the Bible, was the one who created. It wasn't just God saying, all right, Jesus and Holy Spirit, you sit sit back here for a moment. I'm going to take care of this whole creation thing. As we see in the rest of Scripture, this was a Trinitarian act. Trinitarian act, sorry. Tongue twisters this morning. God worked in a Trinitarian way to create all of what we see. Well, now we find ourselves at the third point, the work of our Creator. There's a couple other words in this sentence that we should put under the microscope. We need to to talk a little bit more about what God did and what the result was. The action word of this verse is very simple. 
It just comes out created. God created. Now we have talked about this from other angles this morning, but I'm going to double underline the power of this action once more. God created all things from nothing. He created the heavens and the earth from absolutely nothing. Now this is something that screams the awesome power of God. But it often gets overlooked or turned into a humdrum concept by humans. As human beings, we're used to thinking of ourselves as being creative, right? There's a whole subset of people out there on the internet who call themselves content creators. And there's no insult intended to you know, graphic designers or artists or music composers or architects. But what these creators do so well is not, strictly speaking, creation. It is primarily compiling pre-existing materials or ideas and then re-presenting them. Secondarily, this creative action on the part of humanity is imitation. There is imitation that goes on here. Not only do we take pre-existing materials and shape them, but even our most original idea is merely an imitation of something that we have already seen. Now, Greta and I, we really love the architect Frank Lloyd Wright. He's just so fascinating. I should should probably preface this by saying that, you know, before I married Greta, I had no idea who Frank Lloyd Wright was. I had no interest in him. I, you know... You could have, you could, he could have stood in front of me and I would have just been like, I don't know who this is. But, once we got married, we started touring Frank Lloyd Wright houses in Chicago. This was one of Greta's passions. She's like, while we're here, we might as well take advantage of it. And we went and we looked at some of these houses. And they are amazing, mind-blowing houses. Some of the things, some of the ways that these houses look, you know, it's just, it's very beautiful. It's very functional. Some of the ways that he used space are just amazing. Some of them are downright weird, but, but some of them are very amazing. And yet, Frank Lloyd Wright, when he designs this giant, intricate, purposeful house for a friend or for his family or for himself, he's still just designing a house. This is an idea that has already been come up with. These are materials that he did not create out of nothing. No, he took materials from the world around him. He took an idea, he tweaked it, and he came up with an amazing work of art. But it's an imitation. It's an idea that he has seen before, that he is building on. God, on the other hand, is the only true original designer He comes up with the very first concept of how the universe and all therein should look and function, and he spoke it into being. He alone has the absolute power to do what no human could ever do. He has this power that no human can ever wield to bring physical matter out of absolutely nothing. We see this concept that's labeled by theologians as creation ex nihilo. We see this concept in passages such as Hebrews 11. And Romans chapter 4. In Hebrews 11, we see this. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And then Romans chapter 4, verse 17 tells us that God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. 
God creates the universe where there was no universe previously. Now it's so interesting to talk with someone who denies God's existence and ask them about where certain things come from. Where does the science that you hold to so dearly come from? Where does the physical creation that you experience come from? Where do the morals and the ethics that you live by, where do they come from? And they will try to trace things back or they'll try to explain things, but if you keep taking them back, eventually you run into the fact that we need a creator. And by the way, that creator cannot be created himself. At the beginning, there has to be a cause that is not caused himself. And I know that sounds like a word salad. But understand that if someone created God, and then God goes on to create us, then God is not God. He's not that powerful. It's the person who created God that's powerful. Brothers and sisters, in Scripture we see the simplest answer possible. That God existed before all else. Out of nothing, He brought everything. His creation, therefore, is on a whole separate plane from our creation. He's the divine architect. We are merely the created imitators. He gave us the material, and we merely are given the ability to tinker with those materials. He is sovereign over His created universe, and we merely inhabit and interact with what He has caused and created. This really makes us feel small, doesn't it? We aren't as big as we thought we were, or as powerful as we think we are. And yet, this is the point. Job 38 through 40 makes this so incredibly clear. I'd encourage you again to go back and read those chapters. In these chapters, Job and his friends are reminded of the massive distance there is between a sovereign God, a powerful God, and the weak and feeble and puny human being. God is the creator and we are his creations. That section ends with God challenging mankind with the question, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? God lays out the distinction between creator and creation. And he says there is distance. There's so much distance between the creator and his creations. This answer that we are brought to by Genesis 1 is that we are not ever able to contend with God. We have neither the authority nor the knowledge to do so. He is our creator. We are his creations. He's the designer of the universe. We are merely dust in his presence. This concept really hits home to us when we understand the scope of what God created. The last few words of Genesis 1-1 tell us what God created. It is the heavens and the earth. Now at this point, this is not the complex universe made up of galaxies, made up of solar systems, made up of of stars and planets that we know from science today. At this point in Genesis 1-1, we don't see stars and galaxies and solar systems and all that. That'll come in a couple days. For us, it'll come in a couple months as we preach through this. (laughs) But brothers and sisters, those stars will be created on the fourth day, but this universe nonetheless is the universe that we live in all of that space and some of the materials that we see later are brought into existence in this moment in genesis 1 1 if you want to have your mind just blown 
Look up some videos on YouTube that try to express in human terms, with human measurements, how big our universe is. When you start getting into how fast light travels, and how we live at least four years of traveling at the speed of light from the nearest star outside of our solar system. When you start to think about there are trillions of, of miles, uh, I'm sorry, there's, there's trillions of miles that light travels in a 365-day year. You start, you start thinking, we're pretty small. God is huge. His creation and His universe are amazingly huge. We are microscopically small in the creative scope of what God does here in a single word. Well, at this point, you may be wondering what the point is. Did you just come to church to hear about how small you are? (laughs) Did you just come to church to hear about how powerful God is? In a sense, yes. But this verse is not just about making mankind feel small and powerless. Instead, the the point of all of this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The point of all of this is that Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died to save sinners. And you might be scratching your head saying, well, that's an awfully big jump, isn't that? We're going from the creation of the world to Jesus dying on the cross for sinners. How are you going to bridge that gap, Mr. Dion? You might think, well, this this theme that we're supposed to be following through this sermon, this had nothing to do with Jesus. The theme was that God reveals himself by his word and power. What does that have to do with Jesus saving sinners? Well, friends, please take a step back with me and look at God creating everything by his sovereign word, according to his holy will, and accomplishing this work by his absolute divine power. Take a step back with me. And realize that God reveals this to us in his word. Not just to remind us that he is the creator and we are creations. Not merely to remind us that we have a beginning and that he is infinite. No, God's message in this is so much greater. In this first creative act, we see a picture of a much greater creation that will come farther down the road. You say, greater than God creating the heavens and the earth? you got to tell us about this. This picture that God paints for us in Genesis 1-1, it's history. I'm not denying it's history. I'm wholeheartedly convinced that this is history, history, history. But it is also a picture to us of what God does in the hearts of sinners. God sent His Son to die for sinners. This is after mankind fell into sin. God sent His Son to die for sinners. Jesus came and He lived perfectly in the place of His people and He died effectively for His people. But then God sends His Holy Spirit to do something far more amazing than creating the heavens and the earth. God's Holy Spirit comes into a dead heart and creates life there. He gives new life. This is what is so special about Ephesians chapter 2. This is like the the Presbyterian anthem, you know? Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, the God who revealed himself by his word and power in Genesis 1-1 is the God who is alone responsible for the salvation of souls. His word, God's word and his power, or to put this in Trinitarian terms, his son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are responsible for bringing spiritual life out of spiritual death. Just as man was not involved or active in the creation of the cosmos, so also we receive the powerful blood of Jesus Christ. By faith worked in us by the powerful Holy Spirit. And in that truth, we marvel. You ever wonder why, if men were the, the crown of creation, why they weren't created on day one? I think it's to, to remind us of how uninvolved we were with creation. To remind us of how passive we are in our own salvation. The God who breathed life into the cosmos, who made everything out of nothing, is the one who reaches into dead, rotten hearts and creates life. This is where we marvel. We marvel that God would deign to make us new, to give us life. We marvel that God would be pleased to make children out of enemies. We marvel that God would see fit to create not just our physical existence, but the spiritual life we enjoy through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, these two creations should fill us with awe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And then God came and sent his son into history to die for sinners like you and I. So that we would go from dead, rotting corpses to living sons in his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your creative work. We thank you that it points to your absolute sovereignty and power over everything. We thank you as well that you are the infinite God. The one who has always been, who always will be. We thank you that you reveal the fact that you are the Trinitarian God of the rest of Scripture. Here in this first verse. Lord, help us to be taken aback, awestruck, overwhelmed by the power that you exhibit here in this verse. And Lord, please guide us as we continue through this book. Help us to remember that you are sovereign, you are God, you are the creator, and we are merely your creations and your people. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.